All right, if you could go ahead and make your way back to your seats. So if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 2. That's going to be our scripture reading this evening. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 verses one through 12. Starting verse 1, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we give you thanks for, uh, God, the common graces that you give into our life every single day. God, you give us, uh, food and, and shelter. You give us clothing. You give us the ability to work. Uh, God, you give us the ability to provide for our families. You give us a safe community to live in. God, the freedoms that we have, um, and that are provided for us. God, we, we thank you also, uh, and, and even more so, um, for the particular blessings that you have shown your people. God, we thank you for the grace and the blessing of church, of, of fellowship, of being able to come together, um, as, as friends and brothers and sisters in Christ to, um, to 
God, lift up our voices in praise to you and to worship you. God, to fellowship and care for each other. Um, God, and to, to partner together for, for the work of the ministry, um, for the growth of the kingdom of God. Um, God, we thank you for the church. We thank you for your word as we come to it, even this evening. Um, God, this objective source where we, God, get a glimpse of who you are. And we get a glimpse of who we ourselves are and the predicament that we find ourselves in because of our sin. God, we, we see who your son is and, and we see his glorious gospel, um, and how he has come, um, to save us from our sin. Father, for all these things and many more, um, we thank you. God, we ask that, uh, as churches in our community have preached the gospel this Lord's day, God, that you would work through them. God, sister churches of, of other denominations, God, as long as they are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, expounding upon your word, God, we ask for your, their, your blessing, um, and your provision in each one of those places, God, that you would, would, would multiply the work that they are doing in, in the communities and the context that they are ministering in. Uh, we ask that you would use this, God, as as a means of revival, that we would see revival even in our own time, um, in our own community, in our own churches, in our own families, in our own hearts. God, we thank you uh, for the way that you continue to bear with your people, the way you continue to work in us. Um, God, help us see those things and be thankful for them. Father, we love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I said earlier, we're going to, over the next few weeks in, in the Advent season, we are going to zoom in on sort of some key elements of, of the story of Christmas. Um, we've not um, sort of done that in the, in, in the exact same way um, for a couple of years because we've been at other places in the scriptures at different times. And so basically we're going we're gonna to set the sermons to coincide with the different um, weeks of Advent. And so I'll kind of go through them real quick. We already talked about one. The, the first week of Advent is is uh, called the, the week of, of hope or the, 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 the week of the prophets um, candle. And that's what it symbolizes. The second week is the week of faith or the Bethlehem candle. The third candle is the week of joy. Uh, and that's the shepherd's candle. The fourth uh, candle is the candle of peace or the angel's candle. And then finally on the last, on, on, on Christmas day itself, um, traditionally the, the candle in the center, the white candle is, is lit representing light and purity and, and called the Christ candle, um, because it represents Christ's light going out into the world. So with each one of those themes, we're going to take a particular passage of scripture over the next few weeks and, and sort of talk about the Christmas story. So today I want to focus in on, on the story of the wise men, uh, the story of the Magi as pursuers of these prophetic promises um, that they had come to discover. And we're going to look at the wisdom of staking our entire lives on Jesus Christ, staking our lives on the hope of Jesus Christ. So let's kind of begin with um, talking about the Magi. You know, the Magi are are a are probably a very popular character. Like everybody remembers them. If you if you've grown up in church and you you know they're 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 a big piece of the story, um, but we don't know a lot about them in in reality. So when we look at that text, there's only a few things that we glean from it. Number one is we know that they come from the east. 
Okay. And so we know that we geographically, we know where Jerusalem is. We know that these guys have come to them from the east. Some have theorized because of that, that they were perhaps Arabs. Um, who were connected to the biblical traditions through, through Esau and, and all the way back there. Um, particularly because, uh, the Arabs controlled the Eastern desert to Jerusalem at the time. So maybe that's the case, but probably not. Probably the case is, is that these Magi are actually from Persia, Babylon. Okay. Um, that word magi was a, a sort of technical word that you would use to describe this cast of cultic priests that came from the, the land that had been Babylon and then was eventually conquered by Persia. And so these were, these were, uh, priests of these different mysteries of, of the Babylonian and, uh, Persian uh, beliefs. Um, they were very into astrology and, and the movement of the stars and, and, and how those things affected, uh, humankind. Um, and also it's probably the case is that just being these schools of magi, they would have been students of a number of various sort of secret and prophetic wisdom that was around the, the, the Middle Eastern world at the time. So if that's the case, if that's, if the Magi are who we think, think they are, then it, it, it is very likely that they may have had access to the prophecies that we find in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, particularly because remember who Daniel was. So Daniel was a Jewish man who was taken into captivity during the Babylonian conquest of, of, uh, Israel and, and Judah. And so he was taken back to Babylon as a young man, probably a teenager, but because of God's blessing on him, he immediately was put in positions of, of authority and had a long and pretty illustrious political career. And so serving first under King Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire um, and his successors, and then not only in that kingdom, but when they are conquered by the Persians, um, you know, it says something when a foreign government comes in and conquers a, a nation, but they keep you, right? Um, because you are so uh, important and integral and wise to, to the whole thing working. And so when the, when the Medes and the Persians conquer the Babylonians, they keep Daniel on and he serves now under the rules of the Persian king Cyrus and Darius probably lives into his 80s, maybe even his 90s, um, and so has this long and influential career. And if you read the book of Daniel, you know that he is famous for interpreting these dreams and giving these prophecies of, of the things to come. So it's likely that the Magi might have known who Daniel was. Obviously, he lived hundreds of years before them, but he would be a known person and they would have studied his writings. And that might give us a clue as to why the Magi leave when they leave and head to Jerusalem. And this is what I mean by that. Because, because the question is, is what is it that makes them leave where they come from and head toward Jerusalem? Well, we know what the Bible tells us is that it is this star that they see. And they interpret that star, this, this phenomenon in the sky as representing somehow the birth of the prophesied Jewish king. Now, the question we would ask ourselves, though, is, is why? What is it about this star that, that 
makes them think, yeah, this is this is the Jewish king and this is where we need to go. Well, there's all kinds of theories to that. We actually shared one previously in another Christmas um, season or whatever. Um, they all have problems. None of them are are just completely line up with everything that we would like them to. Um, but again, I think it's likely that the Magi's were at least students of the Jewish prophecies um, that we find all throughout the Old Testament, particularly the prophet Daniel, and maybe even more particularly, the prophecy that we find in Daniel chapter 9. Okay, now you may have never looked at this, but it's a really cool thing, and, and I want to I kind of play it out for you, so much so that I put notes. It looks like a math equation in your in your bulletin, Okay. And you're like, Ash, I didn't come here to do math. Okay. That's why I wrote it all down for you to just to, as I say these numbers and things, it'll help you follow along just a little bit. Okay. So, so you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. But when we go to the prophecy found in Daniel chapter nine, this is what it says. It says 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression. And to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, that's the word Messiah, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens, or in some translations, seven weeks And 62 sevens, or 62 weeks, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. Cool? Okay. So we see this term anointed one, this term Messiah in this prophecy is emphasized. And it's also clear um, that there's this formula that we have to figure out there before... We can calculate when this Messiah will not only come, but be cut off and killed. All right. And so um, one thing that we have to ask immediately is, is what it mean? What is it talking about when it says this Messiah will come? Are we talking about him being born? Are we talking about him assuming the throne, conquering? Um, like what is what is that? Well, we don't know for sure. Um but if we assume a couple of things, if we assume when he talks about these weeks, he's talking about periods of seven, right? Because there's seven days in a week. And we say that those are years. Then all of a sudden we say, we could say seven weeks of years and 62 weeks of years. Make sense? We do the math on that. So that's seven times seven plus 62 times seven, which is equal to 49 plus 434 which is equal to 483 years. So 483 years from then, this Messiah, after that, the Messiah should be cut off. Okay? But what's the start date? That's a key piece, right? When do we start this count? Well, he tells us, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So when we go to the scriptures, who is it that ordered and decreed to restore Jerusalem, and when did that take place? Well, It's kind of a complicated question again, because there were multiple leaders over multiple generations, multiple years, who in different ways allowed different groups in waves to go back to Israel and to start to rebuild, okay? But most likely the one he's talking about is the Persian king Artaxerxes, and we have an account of that in Nehemiah chapter 2. So in Nehemiah chapter 2, you remember the story of Nehemiah? 
Um, he's the cupbearer of the king, and he's looking downcast one day, and the king says, why are you so downcast? And he says, because my hometown, Jerusalem, is in ruins, and there's nothing to be done about that. And so the king says, well, what do you want me to do? And he says, let me go back. Let me go back and rebuild Jerusalem and, and bring it to its glory. Well, Nehemiah chapter 2 tells us when that conversation and decree took place. It tells us that it was in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, which Nissan is in our calendar, it sort of straddles March and April. And the 20th year of Artaxerxes was the year 444 BC. Okay. So you're just like, Ash, cool, a bunch of numbers. I don't know where we're going yet. Uh, it gets a little more complicated, right? Because the Persians oftentimes would use a lunar calendar instead of a solar calendar. A lunar calendar has 360 days in it. A, a solar calendar has 365.25 days in it. That's why we have a leap day every four years, right? So if we're going to use the Persian calendar, we got, we've got to convert the years back into lunar years instead of solar years. Does that make sense? So what we do is I did all the math for you there on your, on, on the, the bulletin. We take those 483 years, we multiply that times three, a 360-day calendar, and we get 173,880 days. Now we convert that back into solar years because we're working on a calendar that has solar years. That's 476 years and roughly around 25 days. Okay, So here's the cool thing. If you start in the month of Nisan in the year 44 BC, 444 BC, and you count forward 476 years and about 25 days, a half a month, something in that range, you end on the date late March, early April of the year AD 33. Okay. Which just so happens to be the most likely date for the triumphal entry in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? Um, so imagine this. If the greatest wise man of your culture in Persia, whoever lived, a guy named Daniel, had done this prophecy, and you had done some math in your head, and you said, you know, guys, we're about, we're about 30, 35 years out from when this Messiah is supposed to be cut off. You know what I'll bet? I'll bet he's probably being born right around now sometime. Because, you know, if you were a king, you're probably 20 to 40 years old or something like that when you come to your throne. And so you're sort of looking around going, you know what, between somewhere 7 BC to 7 AD, I'll bet this kid is going to be born wherever he ends up being born. And then guess what happens? One day you wake up and there's this weird star in the sky. And you go, I think this is, I think this is the sign. And so let's pack up the camels uh, and let's head to Jerusalem. Okay. And so that's what they do. And they show up in Jerusalem. Now, so here's the deal. If you go study this issue and the numbers and the math and all that stuff, this is what you're going to find. There's going to be lots of people who have, yeah, buts in it. Okay. So some of them are going to go, well, you know, the Jews didn't really use a, a, a lunar calendar. They, and, and the Persians did this at a certain time. And, and really, if you count the date from this time, it makes more, you know, whatever. And they go through that thing. But here's my deal. Here's my deal. If you have a possible date, and it lines up like to the week of the day that Jesus is crucified, then I go, man, that's just a little too much for me to go, eh, forget it. Right. That it's it's just too it I want to use the word convenient, but it's not convenient. 
It's prophetic. Okay. Um, it is the fulfillment of the, that scripture, I think. So again, um, people argue over it. And if you go and study it, you'll see that none of these things, because we don't know enough, right? We don't have all the data and stuff. And so people are going to have arguments about it. But it seems like it's pointing to something that is hard to ignore. But it brings me back to that earlier question. What prompted these men to leave for Jerusalem in a more general sense is this. These men deeply, I think, knew the prophecies of Scripture, I think they had been reading them. I'm not saying they were faithful Jews in any way or faithful followers of God, but they knew what these prophetic um, things in the scripture said, and they were looking for their fulfillment. Even as pagans, right? Even as people who were not followers of the one true God. So we sit in a, a time, I think, of similar prophetic hope. We are eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. And I believe the study of the scriptures and confidence in the scriptures will be the key to faithfulness and wisdom when it comes to those things. Now, here's the deal. We don't have a time and we're not going to have a time, right? The New Testament doesn't give those formulas the way the Old Testament does, okay? In fact, Jesus specifically says, you know, the hour of the day, nobody knows. Not even the sun knows when Jesus is going to come back, okay? But while the timing is hidden from us, the certainty of his return could not be more conspicuous when we look in the New Testament scriptures. Jesus is coming back. That's what Advent's about. That is, is one of the key focuses of the New Testament. The reality of that should change everything about our lives every single day. The fact that Jesus may show up tomorrow should make us live different kinds of lives. The Bible gives the illustrations. If you knew your house was going to be broken into tonight, it would change the way you went home and prepared, right? If you knew for a fact that somebody's going to show up tonight and break into your house, you wouldn't just go home and go eat a bowl of cereal, watch some TV, and go to bed. You wouldn't do that. You would prepare in a very different way. If you were getting married and your bridegroom was coming to pick you up, you would keep your eyes out for that person to come because that day is too important for you to miss your ride or not know where he's at or get your wires crossed in some way, all right? Did you know, I was reading this, you know, some of us are probably about to travel for, for the Christmas holiday season. Did you know that on average 5% of airplane uh, seats, uh, the people don't show up for for their seat? 5%. So in any given plane ride, 5% of the seats, the people just don't show up for them. Um, they don't end up being there. Um, that's a high number, I feel like. It's a lot of people who have planned to be on that flight and then just aren't there. And I'm sure there's all kinds of reasons, hangups and emergencies that cause a delay. But here's what I think probably is most of the cases, is that people are not diligent enough in their preparation to make sure they get to their flight on time. And I've been there before, right? I'm like, I'm sure it'll be fine. There won't be any lines. There won't be any holdups. It'll all go perfectly. And then we are running for the gate, right? Trying to get there in time. I think the Jews in this story are similar to those people who have missed their flight. 
The Magi show up at Herod's palace and the Jewish leaders and experts in the law seem to be caught off guard. They have no idea that anything's going on out of the ordinary. They've not noticed this star, apparently, and they certainly haven't noticed its significance. They have no idea about the events that are taking shape around you. They seem to know where the Messiah is going to be born. One guy does know that. Where's he going to be born? He's going to be born in Bethlehem, but they're oblivious to the wind. And again, I think because they're not paying attention. Their hearts are not prepared for the coming of the Christ. So what I would encourage you, I would, I would say to you is place your hope and prepare your life for the coming of the Lord because he is closer today than he was yesterday. Search his word diligently so that you will be prepared when he arrives. That's the first lesson we see in the wisdom of these, of these magi. But another thing we see is not only do are, are they committed to his scripture and, and finding, um, the truth of God's word, but they're committing their gifts to the Lord. Verse nine, after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star appeared to them. Um, and then down in, in the second half of verse 11, it says, then they opened their treasures and presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So again, the details are kind of sparse for this story. We wish we knew more about how all this worked. Like how did the Magi find the specific house once they got to Bethlehem? Did they just show up and start like going, have you noticed any babies with like halos, light shining from them? Is that, you know, I, I don't know how they found the specific one. We know that the star in some way stopped over the place of the child's birth, which was, I think, the city, not the house. And so, but what it means and how this was accomplished, we, we don't know, okay? Um, even though there's fascinating theories about that out there. But they bring these gifts, and, and here's I, something I was thinking about as I was reading the story, that in this moment, when they bring these gifts, it had to, for a second, be seem foolish a little bit, okay? So you show up in this podunk town, right? And we, we don't know the exact context, but certainly Mary and Joseph were not people of great means. They are live where, whatever's going on, it is, it is not, um, grand. And they show up and they're like, we brought gold and frankincense and myrrh, like the most pricely gifts out there. And we're going to leave them in this, this backwoods town with these two, you know, blue collar, uh, uh, Jewish people who have this baby who apparently is the king of the Jews. Like there's got to be a moment there where you go, I don't know if this makes a lot of sense. It just doesn't seem like we came all excited because we figured we were going to get to see this baby who was obviously the king. Now we're seeing a baby who is, we're, we're a little bit confused about that. I think I've told you this story before um, about how I could have, been a millionaire right now. Um, when I was at Auburn, I had a business class and we would do these case studies of, of emerging businesses. And one time in somewhere around 1998, we did a case study on this little emerging business called Amazon. And Amazon was a textbook seller. 
That's all they did, basically. Now, you could buy other books there, but, like, you bought textbooks from them. That's how everybody on a college campus knew about them. And we went through all the stats and the statistics stuff or whatever and about their earnings, and 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 they were losing money every year. Uh, every year they had been losing money. But but there were some certain metrics there that, that my professor said, hey, man, if these guys can ever get all these pieces together and get this thing going, this thing is going to blow up the publishing industry or the, uh, the, the book sales industry, which little did he know that was – only one piece of it. So anyway, I went back and looked. The stock was going for $0.78 cents a share at that time when I was in that class. In, in 2021, it went for $166 uh, per share. So I thought to myself this. If I had just taken my tuition that semester and said, I'm not going to school. I'm just taking my tuition and I'm putting it in Amazon uh, we wouldn't have money conversations at insurance anymore, right? Like we would just be going, don't worry about it. We got it covered. Ash is just going to pay it because we would have money coming out of our ears. But why didn't I, right? Why didn't I, why didn't I invest all my money in Amazon? Well, because at the time I was like, if my professor at Auburn was this smart, why is he teaching me? <laughs> he should have invested in and already been a millionaire somewhere, like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, right? Um, I didn't want my parents to be mad that I called them up and said, you know that $1,500, which that's a crazy number, I know, that it only costs $1,500 a semester to go to college. Some of you are like, what the? Um, if I had told my parents that I had taken my $1,500, quit school, and invested it in a book distributing company, right? Um, you know, education seemed like a better track, right? The wiser decision that would that would be better in the long run. And besides, I had comic books and football tickets and and going out to eat with people to pay for, right? But man, every single one of those things seems super stupid and trivial now, right? Like I would give up a hundred football games to go back and just take the money I spent on those tickets and put it into Amazon stock. I think the Magi kind of had a thing going on like that. They came to this point and they're like, uh, is this a wise decision? And yet they knew that it was because Jesus is worthy of our best gifts because they believed that they had found the Jewish Messiah and something more than just the Jewish king that was to come. But I think they they knew that he was more than that because of the fact that it talks about the fact that when they got there, they worshiped him. Right. I don't know how they knew that. I don't know how it was revealed to them, but they knew in that moment that there was something more important, more pressing than the cost of those goods that they possessed. And so here is the reality. I don't think in eternity we are going to regret anything that we have spent for the kingdom of God. Right. We are not going to get to eternity one day and say, man, that money I spent, uh, the energy I exerted, um, the hours I served. Gosh, I wish I had those back and I would have done something different with them. No, I think it's going to be the exact opposite. Right. We are going to wish that we had put so much more into those things when we see these things come to fruition. The Magi bring costly gifts and lay them at Jesus feet. Gold is Obviously precious in both the ancient world and our world. That goes without saying. Frankincense, you, you may be aware, is a spice that is used for various things, but particularly 
It's used for incense and was burned in the temple to accompany the prayers of the priests. Myrrh is a is an oil, an ointment. They make it into an ointment that's used for, again, various things, but particularly for anointing dead bodies. So you remember when Jesus is hastily put into the tomb after his crucifixion, his body is not prepared in the typical way. So the women have to return to the tomb to anoint him on uh, resurrection morning, right, on that Lord's Day. Um, probably with oil and, and myrrh. And, and this is complete speculation, but I think it's a neat idea. It is conceivable that the jar of ointment of myrrh that they bring with them to the tomb to anoint Jesus is the very same jar that these wise men have brought because that would have been a, a pretty priceless kind of, of gift to, to be given. It would be something that you would save and not just um, use haphazardly. And so it may be the case, again, there's complete speculation, but it may be the case that the very gift that was given on this night is the same one that was brought to Jesus' tomb. But as it turned out, Jesus didn't need it after all, um, because by that point he had already raised from the grave. Each gift valuable in and of themselves, but also each one pointing towards a higher truth about Jesus' kingly status and the gold, his priestly ministry and the frankincense and his sacrificial destiny in the myrrh. But one, one more thing as we close. It isn't just these gifts and it isn't just them laying them down before Jesus, but consider the fact that they recognized that the worship that they owed Jesus was worthy of risking their lives for. So, so what we see is this. This engagement that he has with Herod, this interaction that they have with Herod, um, Herod wants to know where the child is because he says he wants to come and worship him as well. Verse eight tells us that the Magi, um, the Magi are, are going to go and then they're supposed to report back to, to Herod, but they don't realize that his intentions at this point are, are diabolical. And, and Herod is an interesting character in the history of the Bible. So he is an able monarch. He does lots of big, cool, important things. He's the one that rebuilds the temple, um, in, in Jerusalem. Um, he manages to endear himself to the Roman emperor and serve as, as in this kingly position. Um, interestingly, he is not a Jew technically. He's actually an Edomite. He is a descendant of Esau. So he has more ethnically in common with, with the Arab nation than he does with the Jews, but he had, his family had converted to Judaism, um, and, and he was now living as a, as a pretty unfaithful, um, Jew. But many people still disliked him because of these things and thought he was, he was being used as a, as a stooge of the Roman Empire. But despite all of his leadership, um, he was incredibly wicked. And so uh, later on in his life, particularly, he was seen for his cruelty. So just before Jesus' birth, we learned from other historical sources that he had two of his own sons murdered. And the reason is because he felt that maybe they were plotting against him and trying to usurp his throne. He had two of his own sons um, murdered. So maybe the Magi are aware of his ruthless tendencies. So when God warns them in the dream not to go back to Herod, they sneak out of Bethlehem and out of the nation of Israel to go back to where they came from. But but notice this, there certainly would have been risk to that, right? To have an order from the king of this region and then to defy that order and sneak out another way. Their refusal to be a part of the discovery of this, this Messiah 
um, is the kind of thing that could get you labeled a, a treasonous usurper. And especially if you got a paranoid king, that's the kind of thing that can get you killed. And murder is exactly what results from it, right? So what happens? The Magi certainly couldn't have known that Herod was going to respond this way, but when he can't identify the one child positively, he decides he's going to kill every baby boy between a certain age range. Information that he got from the Magi under, you know, that, that they didn't know what they were giving to him, just so that he can cover his bases. This unrighteous king in Israel sacrifices the lives of the innocent to secure his own rule as opposed to the true king who is being born, who will sacrifice his own innocent life to redeem the unrighteous. And in doing that, demonstrates his true kingship. And so Herod plays a a, a foil to the reality of who Jesus is, even without knowing it. But the Magi are willing to defy Herod because they have met the true king at that point. They know he is not just another regional ethnic monarch. He is something more, and he is worthy of risking their lives for. And so the reality is the same for us, is Jesus is worthy of our gifts, but he's worthy of so much more than our gifts. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of everything that we have to offer. I'll close with this this kind of last idea, and this, this takes it in just a little bit different direction. But it's interesting to me in the Christian tradition that we call these three men, and we don't know that it's three, right? We just say that because of the three gifts, but we call these these men by three different titles. You probably realize that. Sometimes we call them magi, and we've already talked about what that was. It was this sort of the connotations of astrology and, and occult practices, pagan practices. Sometimes we call them the three wise men, right? Worldly sages of worldly wisdom, and then sometimes we call them the three kings, rulers of some kind in their own right. Then, as now, I think there's something important about that is because in my head, those are the three areas that you maybe would least likely expect to find converse to Christianity from in some ways. The purveyors of pagan religions, the secular academics, the heads of state, those are not typically fertile grounds for evangelism in our time. And I don't think they were back then either. And yet here's the cool thing. Over the last few weeks, I don't know if you guys have paid attention to some of these things, but there have been some really cool stories that have come out of, of the news. Okay. Um, there's this story of, of the tattoo artist Kat Von D, right? Um, the, 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 the press is kind of played up her her background or whatever, but she's certainly somebody who was not a Christian, um, had had uh, connections into some kinds of alternate spiritualities and things like that or whatever. But in recent months, she has become a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, another person, I, and I probably say her name wrong, but Ion Hirsi Ali, um, who is a well-known anti-Islamic um, spokesman, but she was also one of the main voices of the new atheism. She hung out with Dawkins and she hung out with uh, Christopher Hitchens and she hung out with all those guys. She was one of the main voices of the new atheism. In the last few months, she has converted to Christianity um, and, and moved towards Christ in those ways. 
I had an interesting opportunity a couple of weeks ago where I got to sit down at a dinner with Vice President Mike Pence's, one of his chief legal counsel, um, a guy named uh, um, Gregory Jacob. And he he sort of talked about Vice President Pence. Um, and, you know, I've always known that President, uh, Vice President Pence presented himself as a uh, as a Christian, right? You, you, you knew that about him from the outside, but I don't know about you guys, but anybody who has reached that level of politics, I just, there's a skeptical side to me where I go, man, it, it, it must be a front at least at some point. But then to listen to this man, who's a close associate, personal friend of, of Pence say, man, he's not only the real deal. But his calling into politics was a function, his vision for how that would go was a function of his Christianity, of his theological vision for for what he wanted to accomplish, particularly surrounding the anti-abortion movement. Okay, Um, so here's the deal. Those three characters, there would be all kinds of celebrity culture that would be interested in, in those people and what's going on in their lives just because they're famous or whatever. But man, this is what I appreciate is those are three instances of people that most of the world would have written off in terms of Christianity. They would have said, these are not the kind of people who are ever going to be followers of Jesus. They come from just too distant a place. And yet the spirit of God moves and draws the unlikely to faith. And I think the Magi represent in, in just in the way we talk about them, they represent all three of those people, particularly in our Gentile world, people whose background and upbringing and belief and custom all say that person's a lost cause. That person is never going to listen. You'll never convince them to follow Jesus. But the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And by God's grace, he sometimes grants the worldly wise with an even greater wisdom. They set out and they seek and they find the Messiah. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Again, I I hope that the case is, is that um, as we look to the prophetic truths of the scriptures, as we look to the coming of Jesus Christ, we will recognize um, that Christ is worth our all. He is worth all of our gifts. He is worth all of our lives. He is worth everything that we have and more. Let's ask that God would do that in our hearts and minds. Father God, we thank you again for this time. God, we, we ask these things of you. God, we ask that we would live wise lives in terms of following your son. God, that we would not be drawn away by the cares of the world, that the the pressing concerns of the moment um, would not end up making us wasting our lives on on fleeting things, on passing things. But God, that you would give us true wisdom, that we would see your Savior God, that we would know your word and that we would live our lives in a way that is worthy of the salvation that he has won for us. Father, help us to live that way. Help us to live that way and and present those things in this Christmas season. God, help us do it every day of the year. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
The time appointed is rain on the Amen. Uh, thanks for being here tonight. Good to see you. Hope you have a great week. Um, let me ask two things of you real quick. Number one, um, kind of like we did last week, if we could just make that a habit every week of, of everybody um, kind of helping to get things reset up for about five or ten minutes, um, and we'll get it um, done real quick. I said last week, 
it can either take six people 30 minutes to do or 30 people six minutes to do. And so I think it'll go a lot quicker if we all just do that. Um, while we're setting, uh, getting everything set back up, I'm going to grab a um, thank you card from across the way. I left it over there. Um, if you wouldn't mind signing it as you leave tonight, this is a card I'm going to give to John Clark. So John Clark is the, the owner of, of Vienna. He's retiring. Uh, and so we're just going to, we're going to give him a little gift, um, like we do each year, but just wanted to, um, if, if you want to, you can write just a little note or something like that and just say, thank you for your continued service to our church and, and, uh, for hosting us and everything. But, um, just wanted to give that to him as, as we, um, as we sort of see him into his retirement. So um, other than that, hope you have a great week. Um, we will see you next week, God willing. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. See you next week. Thank you.